Good evening. Thank you so much for tuning in this evening. We're starting a new series entitled Rethinking Baptism, and it was my hope that we could start this series being in person for worship on Sunday nights. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen until April, but we do have a target date in mind, and I'm excited about getting back together on Sunday nights and continuing the series when we do, but we're going to start this series tonight online, and I hope that this is a series that helps us to think deeper when it comes to baptism. I realize a series entitled Rethinking Baptism runs the risk of having people uh, rethink their baptism too much, maybe overthink it. Uh, that's not the goal. The goal is to just get us to think deeper about our baptism and what it means for us going forward because we should live out our baptism every day. It's not a one-time event. Remember your wedding day? Remember the excitement and the anxiety, those of you who are married? Remember waking up on the day of the wedding and feeling the butterflies in your stomach? Remember arriving at the church building or the chapel and getting ready? Brides putting on your makeup, getting your hair done, and finally putting on that beautiful dress? Guys, do you remember arriving at the church and sitting around, cutting up with your groomsmen until about 30 minutes before the wedding and then putting on those very uncomfortable tuxes? And guys, do you remember standing at the front, watching the bridesmaids as they walk down the aisle, and then the people in attendance rise and the wedding march begins to play and the doors swing open and there stands your lovely bride and she begins that walk towards you, tears in her eyes, a big smile on her face, walking arm in arm with her father who's giving you a look like, I may have to give her away, but I don't have to like it. You make eye contact with her and the two of you know this is exactly the right thing. Your love for one another is about to be solidified in the joining of two lives in the sight of God. This is the day that the two of you will become one. This is the day that you will recite the vows, place a ring on one another's fingers, and pledge your life to each other in good times and bad, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. A simple I do, a kiss to seal the deal, and you are now ready to begin your life together as one. Do you remember that day? As you're thinking about that day, I want to ask you to remember another wedding day. How many of you remember the day that you were united with Christ? Hopefully all of you who are Christians look back on that day with fondness. Remember when you made that decision? Remember when you vowed to give your life to Christ? Remember the excitement and the butterflies in your stomach? Remember when you made that confession of faith? Remember when you were immersed in the water? And remember when you arose, soaked to the bone, tears in your eyes and a smile on your face with the knowledge that you had just made a life-altering commitment? What a day. Do you remember that day? Maybe you've never thought of baptism as a wedding day, but that's the idea of this series that we begin this evening. Our thinking on baptism is often limited. We think of it as an insurance policy, a get-out-of-hell-free card, the final step in the salvation process. But, you know, there's so much more. We need to expand our thinking on baptism. We need to reimagine this soul-saving, soul-uniting act because there is so much more to it than just being dunked and delivered. And I want to start this evening by looking at baptism as a marriage. Here's another question for you. Remember when you first started dating your spouse? 
Everything was fresh and exciting. You couldn't wait to see each other. You'd talk on the phone for hours on end. You'd get butterflies in your stomach whenever the phone or the doorbell rang. You laughed at his corny jokes and he listened to you ramble on about nothing. You bought each other gifts. You wrote love letters. There was this giddiness, this courtship, and there was the possibility of bigger and better things in the future. Could this be the one? Could I see myself spending the rest of my life with this person? The dating stage may continue for a few months or even a few years, but eventually it's time to either fish or cut bait, right? At some point, it becomes time to take the relationship to the next level. And unless your boyfriend has a fear of commitment, he will eventually pop the question. Any couple who shares a deep love for one another will inevitably desire to move past the dating stage and on into marriage. Marriage is the next logical step for a couple who shares a deep-seated love for one another and wants to solidify their commitment to each other. The dating stage, while fun and exciting, must lead to something either a breakup or a lifelong commitment. And likewise, before we become a Christian, we read the scriptures. We see them for what they truly are, the words of God, the words of life. We glean the truth of their message, the good news, and we get excited about what they're saying to us. We, we get butterflies in our stomach as we read profound word after profound word and we meditate on, on their meaning knowing that it's like nothing we have ever seen or experienced before. We're in the dating stage at that point. We're getting to know God. We're becoming better acquainted with Him through His Word. We're involved in a courtship, if you will. And as we continue to study God's Word, as we continue to take the message and, 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 and apply it and see what it means for us, we begin to understand that it's time to take the next step. It's time for this developing relationship to go to the next level. This initial stage of studying and learning must go in one of two directions, either a breakup or a lifelong commitment. We either accept God's Word by faith or we turn and walk away. When we become acquainted with God and His Word, we are faced with a divine proposal. The Gospel calls for our hand in marriage, and the dating stage should lead comfortably and easily into a commitment and engagement to become one with Christ. This proposal is expressed by Christ himself in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where it reads, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we fall in love with Christ's character and goodness, we naturally want to respond to his invitation. Coming from Christ himself, it is a proposal of unparalleled majesty. A yes answer to the proposal involves an engagement period. Typically, this is a time when the couple makes arrangements for that special day. Before the knot can be tied, there is a certain amount of organization that usually takes place. Everything from deciding on a date and a location, picking out colors, sending invitations, choosing a cake, etc. And one of the decisions that most couples find highly important is the choosing of the wedding party. A bride chooses her bridesmaids and a maid of honor, while the groom chooses his groomsmen and a best man. I've always wondered why they call him the best man. I mean, if he's the best man, why isn't the bride marrying him, right? Anyway, the best man is a close friend or relative of the groom, typically. In the time of Christ, the best man or friend of the bridegroom made all the necessary arrangements for the wedding on behalf of the bridegroom. 
He was to make certain that everything was ready for the ceremony. If any problems arose, he was to resolve them. If we are the bride, uh, if we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, then there must be a best man. And there is. His name is John. The portrait of baptism as a wedding ceremony is detailed in the ministry of John. His own ministry was so closely tied to the act of baptism that we remember him as the baptizer. John referred to himself as a friend of the bridegroom. John's role as best man is seen in the message he preached. It was a message of repentance. This message, like John the baptizer himself, was a forerunner to Christ. And just like the best man in the time of Christ was to prepare everything for the wedding ceremony and resolve any problems that might arise, John's message did the same. Notice what is written about John and repentance. It says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is Luke 3, 4-6, through 6, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. And every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Repentance identifies problems. Problems that stand in the way of one's relationship with Christ. We talked about it this morning. Repentance prompts resolve. It demands personal change. It is a life-altering response rooted in a feeling of regret and remorse for a life lived outside of Christ. And as I have said before, repentance is a radical reconstruction of the heart effective immediately. A penitent attitude and a contrite heart are at the core of this transformation. Before we can be united with Christ, we must make the necessary arrangements. We must resolve any problems. We must get things in order because we are headed for a new life. And repentance prepares the way for salvation. But once we have prepared our hearts, it is time to adorn ourselves. And in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, Paul writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. As the bride appears, the guests turn to admire her beauty as well as the beauty of her dress. For the bride, the choosing of the wedding dress is a monumental decision. There's a show that my wife would watch occasionally entitled Say Yes to the Dress. Cameras would follow around a prospective bride as she attempts to find the perfect dress for her wedding day. And the particular episode that I noticed my wife was watching one time featured a young lady who tried on 15 dresses over like a three-day period and tried on the same dress at least half a dozen times. She brought her family and friends with her to help her decide. It was a huge production. And being a male, I don't understand the infatuation with the wedding dress although I can appreciate their beauty. As the bride of Christ, we are beautifully clothed in the wedding ceremony of a faith-responsive baptism. Baptism is the proper response to a living faith. Some ask the question, why baptism? And I would respond, why not? An obedient faith seeks to respond to Christ's proposal. Baptism is that response. It is not a work added to faith. It is a response to faith. When we respond properly to faith through repentance and baptism for the remission of sins, we become clothed with Christ. And the righteousness with which we are clothed as we approach Christ is a gift for us to wear. If left to ourselves, 
We would be clothed in soiled, stained, and wrinkled garments. But the groom knows our spiritual shortcomings, and he wants to clothe us in radiant garments of purity. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah had to say about the bride's wedding gown. In Isaiah 61, verse 10 and following, it says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. As we walk down the aisle of faith, Christ surrounds us in the beauty of his own righteousness. Though our lives are tattered and torn, though we are soiled and stained with sin, He makes us elegant. You know, perhaps the most important part of any wedding ceremony is the exchanging of the vows. Of course, the commitment itself comes when the groom asks for the bride's hand in marriage and she accepts. There is an implicit agreement in the engagement regarding the ultimate direction that the relationship is heading. But until the vows are exchanged, Either party is free to change their mind or sever ties. In the wedding ceremony, however, the bride and the groom promise to love, honor, and cherish one another regardless of whatever circumstances may arise. Both promise to remain faithful to one another until death do them part. And you know, we make a similar vow in baptism as we pledge to Christ our love and our commitment. But even prior to that act, through confession, we proclaim who Jesus Christ is and what He did for us, the sinner, Confession is faith spoken. It is a proclamation of our commitment to love, honor, and cherish the one who loves, honors, and cherishes us. It is a pledge to live a sacrificial life for the one who sacrificed it all for me. It is a statement of faith that comes from a conviction of the heart. Paul said it in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 this way, that if you confess with your mouth as Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We learn a few things from this passage, don't we? First of all, we learn that confession is the accompaniment of faith. Secondly, we see that confession is not only a declaration of faith, but also a condition of salvation. And third, we find that the object of confession is the object of saving faith. We must confess Jesus as Lord, but we must keep, it in, we must keep in mind, I should say, that confession is not a one-time pledge. Confession is a lifestyle. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. When we become a Christian, we cannot remain silent. We must keep on declaring the good news. We do not have the right to remain silent. We must be the voice of truth we must carry the gospel out into the world around us. We must carry it with us. Our duty as a Christian is to keep on professing, keep on declaring, and keep on proclaiming the goodness of God and the need for a Savior. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father. When Jesus confesses a person, he claims him as his own and he pleads his cause. Our confession is the same. It's claiming him as our own and pleading for his cause. It's also a proclamation of our love for Him. We must also count the cost of commitment. Before we confess our faith and before we become immersed in the waters of baptism, we must understand the significance of what it is we are saying and doing. This commitment must, be, must not be entered into lightly. No vow, especially a commitment to Christ, should be made without considering the cost involved. Christ wants all of us. 
There's no such thing as a partial disciple. Like marriage, it's an all or nothing commitment. I seriously doubt many couples consider the magnitude of such words as for richer, for poor, or in sickness and in health. Few couples anticipate problems that could threaten the marriage. The excitement of the wedding day and a new life together binds couples to the reality, it blinds couples, I should say, to the reality of potential threats. Likewise, no one really anticipates the high cost of faithful living. Most don't consider that following Christ will be a journey that goes through dark valleys at times, but in the wedding ceremony of baptism, we tie our destiny to Christ, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, for, for better or for worse, till death do us part. You know, the songs have been sung, the vows have been recited, the rings have been exchanged. The, then comes that magical moment that brings the wedding ceremony to a close. As someone who has performed a number of weddings, I can tell you that there is great joy in proudly pronouncing the happy couple as husband and wife. That pronouncement sounds something like this, by, by the authority given unto me by the great state of Texas, and as a minister of the gospel, I now pronounce you husband and wife. In the wedding ceremony of baptism, the purpose performing the rite is also careful to preface the act with an appeal to the proper authority as set forth by Jesus in his commission to the disciples. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. At a wedding, it's not enough to simply utter words as a matter of ritual or tradition. In order to be officially recognized by the state, the married couple must comply with the requirements as related to a license, witnesses, perhaps a blood test even. Likewise, it is only by the authority of the one triune God that our relationship with Christ is given official recognition. The believer's baptism is solely by the authority of heaven. Baptism unassociated with Christ and his lordship is of no value. Not just any baptism will do. The fact that baptism is to be done in accordance with Christ's authority ought to compel every one of us to tread very carefully when observing its requirements. But when we do submit ourselves to the authority, when we comply with his commands and we meet all of the requirements, we enjoy another exciting feature of the wedding ceremony of baptism. We take the groom's name. That name, of course, is Christ. And by taking on the name Christian, which literally means Christ follower, we are recognizing and acknowledging his spiritual lordship over our lives. In a traditional wedding ceremony, the minister will say something like, it is my pleasure to introduce to you for the first time Mr. and Mrs. John Doe. And that introduction, signifies that the bride has taken the name of her husband, recognizing his spiritual leadership in their newly formed relationship. By wearing Christ's name, we proudly announce to the world that we belong to him. As Christians, we are honored to wear the most important name the world will ever know, the name of the one who redeemed us and the one who loves us and sustains us and will one day take us home. That is just one of the many benefits that comes from being united with Christ. But you know, no wedding is complete without beautifully wrapped gifts for the bride and groom. And with the wedding ceremony of baptism, there are certainly many gifts that we enjoy. 
as already mentioned, we enjoy the gift of hope, the hope of an eternity spent with the Father someday. We enjoy the blessed assurance that we were once lost, but now we're found. We enjoy the gift of forgiveness that comes through the shedding of Christ's blood. We enjoy the gift that life has meaning and that meaning is found in living for the purpose for which we were created, which is to glorify God. We're blessed with the gift of joy. We can rejoice each and every day in the knowledge of life being about something bigger and better. In short, we enjoy a shower of blessings that come from living a God-centered life. You know, many moons ago, one of our members here, Rob Forkner, baptized his sweet daughter, Bailey, right here in our ministry, uh, our baptistry here at Oldham Lane. The baptism was filmed so that Rob, his wife, Lori, and the family could save that memory and go back and replay anytime they wished. You know, but soon after the baptism, Rob went back and he looked at the video and he noticed that one small part of Bailey didn't go under the water. I think it may have been, you know, one of her toes. And so Rob got concerned. You know, if baptism is a burial, if it is complete immersion, then what do I do? And so Rob came to me with these questions. He even said, I, I don't want to be silly here, but I also don't want to ignore something that may be significant. Will my daughter not make it to heaven because her big toe was sticking out of the water? Will her resurrected body in heaven be missing a toe or two? You know, Rob was torn. Ultimately, he baptized Bailey again, which I saw absolutely no problem with. But Rob's sentiment sums up my approach tonight. And I asked Rob if I could share that, by the way. And he said that was fine. But there is a correct way to administer baptism, and it's important. It is a burial. It is immersion in water. However, we also need to be careful not to get so caught up in the technical side of things that we miss the deeper meaning and significance. Rob and Bailey both understood. They wanted to do the right thing the right way. However, Rob also didn't want to leave his daughter with the impression that, that the dunking was the only important aspect. And I appreciated that about him. I don't want us to be left with that impression either. I never want us to look past the technical aspect of baptism, but I also don't want us to miss the bigger picture. We are wedded to Christ. We are washed in the blood. We are rescued, and may we never miss that. May we never take it for granted, and that is what we are going to be focused on over the next few weeks, understanding that baptism is about so much more than just getting dunked and being sent on our way. I hope you'll continue to tune in. It's been a great day. I enjoyed worshiping with you in person this morning. I've enjoyed being with you tonight, and I look forward to when we can be together full force in April. Thank you so much for tuning in. I love you. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.